You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to Rudolf Steiner Audio. Dot com. This is a reading of a cycle of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled A Modern Art of Education. This is Lecture 6, entitled Walking, Speaking, Thinking, given on August 10, 1923. What I have presented thus far should not simply lead to some theory about the need for a new form of education, but to a new attitude toward education. In my earlier lectures, I wanted to speak less to the intellect and more to the heart. This is most important for the teacher, because, as we've seen, we must base an art of education on a full understanding of the human being. For some time now, whenever people discuss an art of education, we hear that it is the child who is important. There are many educational goals and, in a sense, theoretical demands about how we should approach children but this is not the way to develop complete devotion in a teacher toward education. This is possible only when teachers can understand the whole human being in body, soul and spirit. Those who have living ideas about the human being, as I have described, will find that those ideas are transformed directly into volition. In a practical way, from hour to hour, teachers will learn how to answer an important question. But who asks this question? It is the children themselves. Consequently, the most important thing is to learn how to read children. And in this, we are guided by a truly practical understanding of the human being in body, soul and spirit. It is difficult to speak about so-called Waldorf education because it is not really something we can learn or discuss. Waldorf education is strictly a practical matter, and the only way to describe it is by using examples of how it is practiced in one situation or another according to specific needs. Experience determines how we practice Waldorf education. When we begin with this attitude, we assume that the teacher has an appropriate understanding of the human being. When this happens, in a sense, education involves very general social questions because teaching children should begin immediately after birth. This means that humanity as a whole, every family and every group of people, is responsible for education. This is something that we understand from the nature of children before the change of teeth at the age of seven. Jean-Paul, a German writer, said something truly wonderful when he claimed that people learn more about life during their first three years than they do in three years at a university. Footnote Jean-Paul, real name Johann Paul Friedrich Richter, 1763-1825, to a novelist whose works were popular in the early 19th century. His pen name reflected his admiration for Jean-Jacques Rousseau. End of footnote. It is true, in fact, 
that the first three years as well as the following years before seven are the most important for the overall development of a human being. A child is a very different being at a later age. During those first years, a child is really an organ of sensory perception. The problem is that people do not usually comprehend the importance of this. We must make very drastic statements if we are to reveal the full truth of that idea. Later in life, when people eat, they taste with the mouth, gums or tongue. Taste is localized in the head. That is not true of children, especially during the first years of life. Taste affects their entire organism. Children can taste their mother's milk and their first food right down into the limbs. For a young child, what happens later only on the tongue happens throughout the entire organism. In a sense, children live by tasting everything they encounter. This is something animal-like in young children, but never imagine that this is the same as in animals. In quotes, animal-like in young children is in a sense at a higher level. A human being is never an animal, not even as an embryo, indeed least of all at that time. We can clarify such ideas by comparing them to something else. If you ever observed natural processes with some understanding, say a herd of cows grazing in a field and lying down to digest, each devoted to the whole world in a sense, then you may have some impression of what actually occurs in an animal. An entire universe, an extract of cosmic events, is underway in an animal, and it experiences the most wonderful visions while digesting. Digestion is the most important way that animals have for understanding. While an animal digests, it devotes itself in a dreamy, imaginative way to the entire world. This might seem overstated, but the strangest thing is that it is not overstated at all and corresponds to reality. If we raise that image a step, we see the experience of a young child's physical functions. Taste accompanies all physical functions. And just as taste accompanies all physical functions, something else permeates a child's whole organism and is later localized in the eyes and ears. Consider the wonder of an eye. We see when it receives something formed outside and filled with color, and then creating an image inwardly. It is localized and separate from the totality of our experience. We comprehend intellectually what the eye creates in this wonderful way, I-E-Y-E, of course. The intellect makes it into a kind of shadow image. It is the same for the wonderful processes localized in an adult's ears. What is localized as a sense in adult ears, however, is spread throughout the whole organism of a young child. Thus children do not differentiate between spirit, soul, and body. Everything that affects a child from outside is recreated within. Children imitate their entire environment inwardly. Now that we have considered matters from this perspective, Let's look at how children learn three important activities during the first years, walking, speaking, and thinking. These early capacities have great importance for the rest of children's lives. Learning to walk, in quotes, 
is a kind of shorthand for something much more comprehensive. Because the process of learning to walk is most obvious, we say children learn to walk, but learning to walk is connected directly to balancing ourselves in relation to the spatial world. As children we try to stand, trying to bring our legs into such a relationship to gravity that we gain our balance. We try to do the same with our arms and hands. Our entire body becomes oriented in this way. Learning to walk means orienting ourselves spatially. It is important to see that young children are imitative and sensory perceptive because during the early years they must learn everything through imitation, copying what happens around them. It is clear to everyone that a child's organism develops its own powers of orientation and that the human organism tends to bring itself into a vertical position and not remain horizontal or crawling, and to bring the arms into a similar balance spatially. All of this is inherent to young children, and it arises from the organism's own impulses. We spoil the human organism for life if, as teachers, we introduce even a little compulsion into the true desires of human nature. We should leave human nature free and act only as its assistance. If we do not simply help a child, but use inappropriate external actions to force a child to begin to walk, we ruin that child's life right up to the time of death. In particular, we ruin that child's life in old age. In properly educating a child, it is important not to look only at the present, but at the child's whole life until death. We must understand that the seeds of a person's whole life exist in that individual during childhood. Because children are very subtle organs of sensory perception, they are receptive not only to surrounding physical influences, but also to moral influences, particularly those of thoughts. As odd as this may seem to materialistic thinking today, children perceive what we think when we are around them. As parents or teachers, when we are around young children, it is important not only to avoid acting in ways we should not in front of children, but we should also be inwardly true and moral in our thinking and feeling, which children can sense. Children form their being not just according to our words and actions, but also according to our attitudes, thoughts and feelings. During this period of childhood, before the age of seven, the most important thing for education is a child's environment. Now we come to the problem of what we can do to guide children who are learning to walk and orient themselves. It is important that through spiritual science we see the living relationships that we cannot see with a dead materialistic science. Consider a child who was forced in all sorts of ways to walk and find an orientation in space simply because people felt it was the thing to do. Now imagine that child at the age of 50 or 60. If nothing else has acted to correct the situation, we might see that this person has various metabolic illnesses, rheumatism, gout, and so on. Everything we do to children by forcing them into the vertical position so they can walk, even when we do it only half-heartedly, goes so deeply into the soul that the spirit affects the physical body. 
The forces we create through such dubious means remain throughout life, and if they are not the right forces, they manifest later on as physical illnesses. All education of young children is also physical education. You cannot isolate physical education because all education of spirit and soul affects children's physical bodies and thus it is also physical education. When you see children beginning to orient themselves by standing and beginning to walk, if you lovingly view the wonderful secret of the human organism that causes children to move from horizontal to vertical, if you have a feeling of reverence and modesty when you see God's creative forces in the way children orient themselves in space, if you deeply love the human nature of children because you love every expression of human nature, in other words, when you assist children in learning to walk and orient themselves, you create healthy forces in children that will manifest as a healthy metabolism when they reach 50 or 60, a time when people require some control over their metabolisms. The true secret of human development is contained in the fact that whatever becomes ensouled and made spiritual at a certain stage of life will manifest physically later on, often after many years. This is how it works with learning to walk. A child who is guided with love into learning to walk will grow up to be healthy. Using love to help children walk makes up much of basic physical and health education. Speech develops from a child's orientation in space. Modern physiology knows little about that, but it does know something. Physiologists recognize that although we generally use our right hands, there is a certain area on the left side of the brain that is the source of speech. Physiology thus indicates a correspondence between movements of the right hand and the so-called Broca's area in the left side of the brain. Footnote Paul Pierre Broca, 1824-1880, a French surgeon and anthropologist, described a patient who was able to say only one word, tan. When the patient died, Broca examined his brain and found damage in part of the left frontal cortex, which came to be called Broca's area. End of footnote. The hand's movements, its gestures and means of strength, enters the brain and forms the source of speech. That is only a small aspect of what science knows on the subject. The fact is, however, that speech arises not only from right-hand movements, which correspond to the left side of the brain, but also from motor functions as a whole. The way children learn to walk and orient themselves spatially, and the way they learn to transform their first dangling, uncontrolled movements of the arms into meaningful movements in the outer world, mysteriously passes into the organization of the head. That inner organization manifests as speech. Those who correctly understand such things also realize that children who drag their feet also vocalize, especially with the lips, in a different way than do those with a firm walk. All the nuances of speech arise from the forms of movement. Life involves gestures first. Gestures are transformed inwardly into the source of speech. Speech is thus a result of walking and spatial orientation.
The way a child speaks depends largely on our loving help when that child learns to walk. These are the subtle associations that result from a real understanding of the human being. I had a reason for going into such detail in the previous lectures about how spirit enters the human constitution. Thus we bring the spirit to the physical body, because the physical body follows spirit with each step, as long as spirit is brought to it in the proper way. Initially, children learn to speak by using their entire organism. When you look at it, when you look at it, you see that first there are outer leg movements which lead to strong contours of speech. These are followed by arm and hand movements which lead to inflections in words and their forms. We can see that external movements lead to a flexibility of language in a child. We need to provide guidance through love when assisting children in learning to walk. Likewise, when helping them in learning to speak, we need inner truth. Life's greatest lies are created while a child is learning to speak, because the truth of speech is absorbed through the physical organism. If as teachers we always speak truthfully to children, they will imitate their surroundings and learn to speak so that the subtle, continuous activity of breathing will become stronger. We should not, however, think of these things in a coarse way, but very subtly. They have a very subtle existence, but they manifest throughout life. We inhale oxygen and exhale carbon dioxide. Within our bodies we must transform oxygen into carbon dioxide through the breathing process. The world gives us oxygen and receives carbon dioxide from us. Whether we are able to transform oxygen into carbon dioxide properly depends upon whether we were treated honestly by those around us when we learn to speak. In this situation, spirit is transformed completely into the physical. One such lie is the belief that we are doing something good by lowering our speech to childish language when we are around children. Subconsciously, children have no desire for childish language. They want to hear the real speech of adults. We should speak normally to children, not with some invented childish speech. Because of their incapacities, children initially babble imitations of what we say to them, but we should not babble. That is a big mistake. When we use babbling baby talk, we hurt a child's digestive organs, because spirit always becomes physical and affects the physical organism in its formation. Everything we do spiritually with children is also physical education because children are insubstantial in themselves. An unhealthy digestive organ later in life is often caused by learning to speak incorrectly. Just as speaking comes from walking and gestures, thinking develops from speaking. We need to give loving assistance when helping children learn to walk and likewise we should pay special attention to honesty when they are learning to speak, because they inwardly imitate their surroundings. Because children are completely beings of sensory perception and physically recreate spirit, we need to emphasize clarity in our thinking, so they will develop proper thinking from speaking. The worst thing we could do to a child is to say something and then retract it, saying something different.
This leads to confusion. Using confused thinking with a child is the real cause of so-called nervousness today. Why are so many people nervous? When they were children, they learned to think after learning to speak, and the people near them did not think clearly and precisely. The greatest mistakes in the behavior of any generation are a true reflection of the previous generation. If later, on, if later in life you observe the children you taught and see their vices, it should make you consider yourself. There is a very close connection between everything that occurs in children's surroundings and what those children express through the physical body. In young children the physical constitution is formed by love as they learn to walk, truthfulness as they learn to speak, and clarity and firmness in their environment as they learn to think. Children's organs and vessels form according to the way love, truthfulness, and clarity develop in their environment. Metabolic illnesses arise from learning to walk without love. Digestive problems may result from untruthfulness when the child is learning to speak. And nervousness comes from confused thinking in a child's surroundings. When you look at how common nervousness is in the 1920s, you must conclude that teachers were very confused around the beginning of the century. The confused thinking of that time manifests as nervousness today. Further, nervousness at the turn of the century is no more than a picture of the confusion around 1870. We cannot look at such things and say that there was a physiological, hygienic and psychological education or that a doctor should have been brought in whenever the teacher needed to handle something in a healthy way. Instead, physiological pedagogy and school hygiene form a whole, and it is part of the teacher's mission to work with the effects of spirit on the physical sensory organism. Because everyone is a teacher for children between birth and the age of seven, we face the social task of achieving genuine understanding of the human being. Otherwise, humanity will regress instead of moving forward. Our more humane age has rightly eliminated a common practice in schools, beating and spanking. No one should accuse me of supporting beatings. But the only reason beatings were successfully removed from our schools was because such close attention was paid to externals. Society is quite capable of seeing how physically harmful beatings are and the moral consequences arising from them. Much today is oriented toward the physical sensory world and a little toward spirit and soul. Consequently, we have brought another form of beatings into education, a form that people do not recognize because they look so little toward the spirit. For example, Mothers today, and to a certain extent fathers, find it very difficult to give beautiful dolls to find it very important to give beautiful dolls to little girls to play with. Despite the best of intentions, such dolls look horrible because they are so inartistic. Nevertheless, people often think that a beautiful doll must have real hair, real makeup, and even moving eyes, so that the eyes close when the doll is lying down, and when you pick it up the eyes look at you. There are even dolls that move. In other words, we give children toys that imitate life in odd, inartistic ways. Such dolls are merely typical examples. 
Our civilization is gradually making all toys this way. In effect, they give a terrible inner beating to children. Children may be well-behaved in public and never reveal the conventional upbringing and the beatings they receive at home. Likewise, children do not reveal the antipathy deep within their souls toward so-called beautiful dolls. We force children to like them, but the unconscious forces within children, their dislike of everything about the beautiful dolls, also play a strong role. As I will show in a moment, such things beat children inwardly. When you consider everything that children experience in their simple thinking before the age of four or five, even six or seven, while learning to stand and walk, the appropriate result will be a doll that is perhaps made from a handkerchief with a head on top and maybe two ink spots for eyes. In this doll you have everything a young child can understand and love. It presents the simplest characteristics of the human form, at least to the degree that a young child can absorb it. A child knows no more about human beings than that they stand up. They have an up and a down. And on top sits a head with a pair of eyes. In children's drawings you often find that they draw the mouth on the forehead. The position of one's mouth is not entirely clear to young children. What a child can really experience exists in a doll made from a handkerchief with a pair of ink spots on it. An inner creative force is active within young children. Everything they receive from their environment is translated into inner development, which includes the formation of organs. If a child's father is often angry, if at any moment an unmotivated event should shock that child, then that is also experienced. A child experiences it in such a way that it is expressed in the breathing and circulation. Since it is expressed in the rhythmic system, it actively forms the lungs and heart, indeed the entire circulatory system. Children carry that sculpted inner organization throughout life. It is a constitution formed by seeing the actions of an angry father. What I said is meant only to indicate how children have a wonderful inner formative force and how they continuously work on themselves as sculptors. If you give a child a doll made from a handkerchief, those formative forces move quietly into the brain, that is, those forces affecting the rhythmic system through breathing and blood circulation move gently into the brain and give it form. They shape a child's brain in much the same way a sculptor works with a subtle, light, spiritualized and soulful hand. Everything proceeds through an organic development. Children look at a doll made from a handkerchief and the formative forces arising from the rhythmic system begin to work on the brain. If you give a child a so-called beautiful doll, one that might even be able to move or close its eyes, painted and with beautiful hair, a doll that looks so artistic but is actually quite ugly, the formative forces arising from the rhythmic system to form the brain act like the lashes of a whip. Everything a child cannot yet understand whips the brain. The brain is thoroughly beaten in a terrible way. That is the problem with beautiful, in quotes, dolls. And it is also the problem with much of children's play. When we want to lovingly guide children's play, we must be clear about how much of their inner developmental strengths are called on. 
In this sense, our entire civilization sees things in the wrong way. Our society has, for example, created a form of animism. A child is hurt by bumping into a table and then responds by striking it back. People today would say that the child has rendered the table alive through imagination. They say that the child dreams the table to life and then hits it. But this is not how it works. The child does not dream anything into the table. Rather, children dream life from real living beings. It is not that children dream life into a table. They dream life from actual living beings. When children injure themselves, they strike back out of reflex because things are in fact without life for children. They do not dream life into a table, but respond in the same way toward animate or inanimate objects. We can see that our civilization is unable to approach children correctly because of such backward ideas. The important thing is that we work in a truly loving way with children, so that we guide them only with love toward what they want. Consequently, we should not beat children inwardly with, in quotes, beautiful dolls. We should live with them and make a doll that reflects the way they experience it inwardly. And this is true of all play. Play requires real understanding of childhood. If we babble like a small child, if we reduce our language to that of a child and do not speak as they should hear and as is appropriate to our own nature, We present children with a lie. We should not, however, place ourselves in a position of untruthful speech, but we should place ourselves specifically at the level of children in relation to willed activities, specifically play. If we do that, it will be clear that intellectuality, which our civilization loves so much, exists nowhere in children. Thus we should not interject anything influenced by intellect into children's play. Children naturally imitate in their play what occurs in their surroundings. We seldom see children who want to be, say, linguists when they play. It would certainly be a rare experience for a four-year-old to have ambitions to be a linguist. Under some circumstances, however, a child may want to be a chauffeur. Why? because we can see everything a chauffeur does and it makes a direct pictorial impression. But there is no image of what a linguist does and it completely passes by a child's life. We should involve only those things that do not go unnoticed by children and intellectual things pass them by. What do we as adults need to guide children's play properly? Adults plow fields, make hats, sew clothing, and so on. All of this is oriented toward the practical and within it lies the intellectual. Wherever we find a goal in life, we have penetrated it with the intellect. On the other hand, everything in life, besides being directed toward a goal, also has an outer form, whether plowing or something like building a wagon or shoeing horses. When you see a farmer guiding a plow through the furrows, Aside from the goal of the activity, we feel, if I may use the expression, what lives in that image. If, as adults, we can work our way through to understand what exists in an activity aside from its purpose, we can present it to children in play. Our sense of aesthetics enables us to do that. In particular, 
by not pursuing the kind of beauty that today's dolls strive for, which is completely intellectual, but by going into what speaks to human feeling. We arrive at that primitive, genuinely enjoyable doll that looks more like this, a doll carved by a Waldorf student, not the so-called beautiful doll. But this, of course, is something for older children. Most important, educators should be able to see the aesthetics of work in the activity itself, so that we can present this as we make toys. If we bring such aesthetics into the toys we make, we approach what children really want. We have become almost completely utilitarian or intellectual in our civilization, and thus we present children with all kinds of invented things. It is important, however, not to present young children with things from later life, things we think up. Instead, we want to give them something they can feel when they become older. This is what needs to be in toys. We may want to give a boy a toy plow, but... It is important that we instill into that toy something formative and aesthetic about plowing. This fully develops the strength of human beings. This is where many otherwise good kindergartens make major mistakes. The Froebel kindergarten and others, created with a genuine love of children, must become clear that young children are imitative, but they can imitate only what is not intellectual. Therefore, we should not bring all kinds of invented activities into a kindergarten. Games such as pick-up sticks or braiding, which often play such an important role in kindergarten, are simply invented. In kindergarten, we should do only the things that big people do, not things invented for play. People who really understand human nature are often overcome by a tragic feeling when they come into these well-intended kindergartens. On the one hand, there is an endless amount of goodwill there and much love for the children. On the other hand, there is no consideration for the fact that everything is intellectual. Kindergartens should exclude everything that is thought up for children's play, and kindergarten children should imitate only visible adult activities. When we train children intellectually before the age of four or five, they take something terrible into life materialism. The more we raise children intellectually at such an early age, the more we create materialists for later life. The brain develops in such a way that spirit lives within its forms, but people intuit inwardly that everything is merely physical, because the brain was taken over by intellectualism at an early age. If you want to educate people to understand spirit, you must wait as long as possible to present the intellectual version of the externally spiritual. Although it is necessary, especially today, for people to be completely awake in later life, it is equally necessary to let children live in their gentle, dreamy experiences as long as possible, so that they move slowly into life. They need to remain as long as possible in their imaginations and pictorial capacities without intellectuality. In our modern civilization, if you allow the organism to be strengthened without intellectualism, children will move into the necessary intellectualism in the proper way. If you beat a child's brain, as I described, you will ruin the soul for the rest of life. 
just as you ruin a person's digestion by babbling or a person's metabolism by a lack of love. Likewise, you ruin a person's soul by beating a child from within. An ideal of our education must be to avoid beating a child's soul. And because a child is united as a being of body, soul, and spirit, we must also eliminate the inner physical beatings. In other words, our ideal is to eliminate so-called beautiful dolls and, most important, to bring play to the proper level. I would like to conclude my remarks today by saying again that we need to avoid what is falsely spiritual so that what is properly spiritual, the whole human being, can appear later in life. The end of Lecture 6